0: Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirers Funds. We implement the acquirers multiple in a highly liquid, tax efficient and capital efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. All right, you ready?
1: All
0: right, I'm ready. Let's do it. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is value investor Ben Clareman of Cove Street Capital. He's a principal and a portfolio manager there. We're going to talk to them right after this.
1: Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit Acquire'sFunds.com.
0: Hi Ben, how are you? Doing well, Toby? How are you? And you have, you, I'm very well, thank you. You've got a, you've got a disclaimer that you have to read, so let's yeah, let's I, do it right now at I, the front. You no,
1: know, I, I promised my compliance person that I would read the following. The views expressed herein are those of myself and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cove Street Capital or any of its employees. The information in this podcast should not be considered as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security and should not be considered as investment advice of any kind. You should not assume that the any security discussed. Easier will be profitable.
0: So basically, what they've that, done there—we can,
1: we can they, start.
0: They're trying to make sure that you're personally liable for any any stock recommendations that you yeah. give in this podcast.
1: Yeah, well, you know, this is this is the world we live in, and I, I just I do what I'm told to uh, stay uh, make sure that I don't get in trouble.
0: So you and I have known each other for quite a while. We we I met you uh, possibly even before you had started your MBA at UCLA. Is that possible?
1: So it was probably you know during the NBA during the NBA. Um, here in two, thousand nine for the NBA, but okay. yeah, that's that's probably where we met. So you know it's, it's almost ten years now.
0: But I feel like I've known you because you you wrote the inoculated investor blog, the fantastic inoculated investor blog. Uh, to when when did that start? Two thousand nine, ten, something like that.
1: Yeah. So you know, let, let's start with the fact that. I never really wanted to be a blogger. I always wanted to be a, an, an, you know, a portfolio manager and an analyst, and I wanted to work on the buy side. But you know, I started my career in 2007, and uh, if any of you recall, what happened over the next in two years was the financial crisis, and that was not an easy time to get a job. Um, and so I kind of bounced around on the buy side and, in, in New York City. And you know, I'm always looking for something to distinguish myself, and so I started the blog. Um, basically with a launch with the notes from the 2009 Berkshire meeting, I went to the meeting and I had the crazy idea that I was going to take down every word that Buffett and Munger said. Um, I I will tell you like, you know, going back to like 2009, I didn't even have, I I wrote this out. I didn't even use, I didn't even use a laptop. So it was was handwritten, handwritten. The first, I think the first two were handwritten and then I got smart and I said, this is ridiculous. Um, and so, uh, that was it. It was unique content. I mean, back then there weren't that many people that wasn't transcribed on uh, over any internet platform. So really like all you had was people taking notes and posting their notes. And so that was the, that was kind of the Genesis of the blog. I thought that'd be differentiated content. Um, you know, I was just trying to stay in the game as I was, you know, cause I was transitioning to business school, wanted to stay, you know, as, 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 as kind of on the ground as possible in value investing. And so that was a great platform for that. I met a lot of really interesting people like yourself. Um, and, you know, I still, people, it's funny, people recognize me. and be like, oh my God, you're Ben Claremont, uh, <laughs> the inoculated investor. I'll be at a conference or something like that. Uh, it, it's funny and, and, and gratifying in a certain way. But but these days I spend all of my time, very little of my time writing and most of my time researching companies.
0: So let's talk a little, so the, I just want to tell everybody that the inoculated investor comes from that great buffett quote where he says value investing is like an inoculation right it takes or it doesn't take so clearly unfortunately both you and i have been infected and we've suffered as a result over the last decade but you've you've gone into cove street capital which is you're a principal there and a portfolio manager and you guys run about a billion dollars based in los angeles tell us a little bit about the 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 value strategy because i always say values a very broad church and it it encompasses yeah. very deep value guys through to the franchise compounder guys like Buffett. So, how do you characterize your style, and and, and how does that manifest?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I'll I'll even add a, another nuance there. It's even different value means different things to different things that, to different people at this firm, right? It's not even we're not even one uniform beast when it comes to how we look at value. Uh, but l- let me give you Cove Street's general. Uh, philosophy and, and, and the way we approach value, and then I'll I'm going to put my own spin on it because my you know as I've as I've learned and I've uh, suffered uh, in certain val in, in, in certain investments um, I think my my preferences have changed a bit. So you know Coast Street we look at value in two ways. So what we call a Buffett stock and a Graham stock. And a Buffett stock is your traditional compounder, high returns on invested capital with a moat. Um, and it's a business that's probably, it's not trading at a $0.20 or $0.30, cent dollar. you're probably playing an $0.80 cent or $0.90, cent dollar, and you invest in it because the business is getting more valuable every day, because the people uh, who run the business understand capital allocation, and you're, you, know, you, you benefit from the, from the math of compounding. Um, and so you're not getting a dirt cheap, but over time, the value accretes, and that's how you make a return. So that's what, those are our Buffett stocks. Um, and then the other hand, there are Graham stocks, which are you know kind of an homage to, to Ben Graham, who was a net net investor. Not many of those these days, but you know with, when we're talking about a Graham stock, we're talking about a a a business that is you know for some reason just not great, whether it's got cyclicality to it, or whether it's got you know just a small total addressable market, or it's got customer concentration or end market concentration that just lead, that leads to cash flows that might not be um, particularly predictable. Or returns on invested capital that are just somewhat mediocre, and so those businesses you want to buy cheap. You want to buy 50 cent dollars. You want to buy 60 cent um, dollars. And the difference in terms of our sell discipline, which which we we, we talk a lot about and think a lot about, um, is we, we pre-identify before we buy a security. We pre-identify is it a Buffett or a Graham? And if it's a Buffett and it gets a fair value, we're more likely to hold it because we can benefit from benefit from the math of compounding um, and the business getting more valuable on the other day, uh, every day. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you have the gram stocks. And when a gram stock gets to fair value, we're much more likely to sell it. Uh, we don't want to fall in love with the business. We understand what, we understand what it is. We understand what the, what, the, what the risks are. And so once that margin of safety has been reduced, uh, we're much more likely to sell it. Um, and, and so our portfolio, our, our, our core small cap portfolio, um, is an eclectic mix of buffets and grams. And I would say, you know, we would prefer to own all Buffett businesses. In the perfect world, we would own great businesses that are trading at, you know, 60 60 cents on the dollar, and then we would, you know, we would go to the beach. Well, but, you know, unfortunately, it's a little harder than that, right? And so, um, you know, Jeff Bronchick, our founder, kind of looks at value. He has a very eclectic view of value. He will take, you know, an 80 cent Buffett or he'll take a 60 cent Gram. um, And, you know, we're just very careful about position sizing. And, um, and our self discipline to make sure that we're not uh, assuming too much risk. On um, um, my evolution as an investor has really been colored by the time, the number of times that I've seen businesses that were either had mediocre people or just were mediocre in terms of their returns or their addressable markets. We, I feel like if you just look back at our history, the mistakes that we've made have been in lower quality businesses. And, and when you've been scarred enough times by investing in cigar butts and, and businesses that aren't getting more valuable every day, it, it, for me at least for me personally, it changed my philosophy. And so you know, not to compare myself to Buffett at all, but in a sense, like he made that progression. He studied with Ben Graham and then he started to think about, hey, maybe I should invest in better businesses. And so that's kind of where I am. And so the portfolio that I co-managed with Jeff, uh, our founder, is a more Buffett-oriented strategy, and um, you know I think these days I spend all of my time start with a good business, figure out uh, who's running it and whether the, these people are, are are friend or foe, and then focus on the value. Um, and, and do some one other thing is, is, is create the Buffett list, which is the list of companies you'd like to own at a certain price, you know, and do the work, create a model, have a price target, and. You know what? the The great thing about markets is that they're they well they used to be volatile. In theory, they're volatile, um, and and the vicissitudes of the markets can create opportunities for you. So, do the work, be ready, and have a list of companies that you'd like to own. And so that's 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 kind of the framework we're operating under. Um, you know, and kind of bifurcated between Buffett's and Graham's.
0: And your your universe is. Uh quite clearly defined, I, I don't think I've seen anybody as explicit about the universe that they look in. You guys are small to SMID cap. Is that fair? Or small yes. to mid cap?
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, our, our small cap strategy encompasses 3 billion and under. Any, any security 3 billion and under. And our mid cap strategy, the one that I co manage with, with, with our founder, um, is a billion to 12 billion. So, um, you know, I think basically we consider ourselves a small cap firm. Um, and so why would we do that um, is a question, Right let's just let's just i'll put it out there we're not asset gatherers right we're not looking to raise 20 billion dollars in large cap value right because that's that's a strategy that's scalable and you can raise an a ton of money and if you're successful um it's not in our heart and we feel like it's much harder to be differentiated in large cap you know when you're when you're looking at apple and microsoft and google there are hundreds of analysts on the buy side and sell side looking at these things um and 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 for us we don't feel like we can gain any kind of edge um by the work we do and so our our general strategy and and our our process is to just to do a lot of work and and what does that mean i mean i think everybody says that on their website and 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 i'm not disparaging anybody but i think it varies depending on uh, on your process and so our process since we you know and i'm going to get to the, the the why small cap in a second but since we do a lot of work um and 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 our process is is based around trying to determine you know, try to figure out if we can get information, to have an edge. And so, what are we doing? We're going to trade shows. We're calling customers and competitors and suppliers. Um, we're going to meet management. We're going to, you know, we're going to poke around their office to see whether they have, you know, fancy, fancy paintings and chandeliers, or whether they're kind of the, you know, true value and true Buffett-like value investors, and they, you know, they drive the same car that they've driven since the '70s. You know, we're really trying to understand the people um, and, and do a lot of work, do a bunch of due diligence on the business. And our sense is, if you do that and you're successful at it and you have a repeatable process, what you can do is obviously we're not talking about inside information here, but you can get an, you can have an understanding of the business and the people that a lot of people don't have. And these are businesses that are often covered by one or two analysts, not, you know, 20 or 30. Um, they may or may not have conference calls. I mean, these are we like things that are kind of off the beaten path. People who you know, are not focused on short term Wall Street stuff. Um, and, you know, if not focus on quarterly earnings and they're really thinking three to five years out, um, you know, maybe even a family owner, family controlled company, someone who has, you know, what Tom Russo calls a willingness to suffer. Right. Someone who will invest it for the long run at the, short, at the expense of the short run. And so why small cap is in general, we think we can do that better in small cap and we can get some kind of informational edge. Um, and the academic research, I mean, I'll, I'll let you, you know, the, the, the guy who does the, 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 the research think about this, but I mean, I think for the most part, what we have is, 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 is small cap is an anomaly, right? The thing that has for a, for a long period of time outperformed.
0: I think you're getting trolled
1: there. Yeah, it's okay. That's, that's, that's my, that's our, that's our co-manager right there. Then that's, that's our dynamic. Uh,
0: that's fantastic. Um, you got, you've got a you've got a really detailed, uh, interesting process in the in the in the document that you sent through. I mean, you, you've got this four you, you you describe it as a four step process. Can you take us through those steps and, and talk yeah. a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, happy to do that. It's again, we I think we, we pride ourselves on on anything else, but more than anything else is on the process because you know you can't control the outcome, um, but what you can control the process, and so we want to put ourselves in a position. Of having a good process, and even if we have bad outcomes, at least we've covered our bases, right? And we have, we want to understand the difference between you know good process, good outcome, and bad process, good outcome, because a bad process, good outcome is just luck. Um, and we're trying not, we're trying to as little as possible depend on luck. Uh, so we have a four stage process, um, which starts with kind of in a screening. So everyone has some form of screening. Um, we have capital IQ populated screens that run every Saturday. We run through them. Um, and on Monday morning, we come and talk about them. And so what are we screening for? We're screening for good businesses, trading at reasonable prices, and we're trading for, for, for cheap, optically cheap businesses. And so again, the Buffett and Grimm paradigm. And so, you know, traditional valuation metrics like enterprise value to NOPAD and enterprise value to EBITDA, plus, you know, more, more like a Greenblatt screen, which is you know, stolen from Joel Greenblatt, trying to figure out like good businesses, um that are trading at reasonable multiples and then we also screen for behavioral changes so a ceo change someone mentioned strategic alternatives on a on a conference call some kind of evidence that there's a movement at the company because we think that um you know a lot of money can be made or lost depending uh on a, investing in inflection points and so if you can determine an inflection point in the business you have an opportunity to make to to, to make a fair amount of money Um, So there's that. So that's one element of our screening. The other thing is uh, we may not be the largest firm in Southern California, but we're strategically located right by the airport. Um, And what that means is that we get a lot of management meetings. Uh, The self side brokers bring a lot of people through here. Um, You know, we we don't spend a lot of time um, even you know, thinking about what the sell side thinks, but we have relationships with the, with 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 these brokers, and you know, we I think Coast Street's a pretty good spot for a management meeting because we ask thoughtful questions. We're not bothering them about quarterly earnings. We're thinking three to five years out. So uh, kind of with that long-term focus, often often you know, it's refreshing to executives in in, in a sad way. Um, so and then so the other thing we do is 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 we, um, or at least we have a fair amount of institutional knowledge right? So we, everything, everything we do and, and read and see gets captured in, in either OneNote in, or in a Word doc. And so that what that builds, is like a fair amount of institutional capital of businesses that we've looked at in the past. And then Jeff, our founder has been in the business for, you know, basically forever since the <laughs> since, since the, the early 90s. And so he, you know, he, he's got a fair amount of institutional knowledge. I've been in the game for, you know, almost 10 years now. And so, you know, we're, we're talking about a fair amount of institutional knowledge there. So really what it is, is that's our screening process um and so people always ask us where do our ideas come from and you know what you know we've looked back and we we actually record this in in, in our stage four of the process and there's no there's no consistency and, and that's not, i don't think that's a bad thing per se right sometimes someone comes into the office and it's really interesting sometimes it's a company we follow for three years but have never really done, done the work on but we found you know something was interesting and sometimes we're reading the wall street journal and you know maybe not the main company that was mentioned in the, in the article but a sub company so um, and then another thing is we often we often like to and this we, you see this dynamic in, in small cap versus our, our small cap plus strategy is that in small cap we'll own kind of the little brother of uh, of a larger cap company so we'll own you know we'll own them both but one's a, one's a small cap and one belongs in our smith strategy excuse me our smith strategy so um, You know, I people always try to try to pin us down in in terms of how we find ideas. Let me just say it's eclectic and and we're opportunistic. And since we run a concentrated portfolio um, of kind of 20 to 29 names in SMID and 30 to 39 names in small cap, we don't need that many new ideas. And so we're not a big, you know, our our strategies are designed to be lower turnover. Um, And so if we honestly, if we could find two or three new ideas a year, um, I think that would that would be plenty. so our, our process, and then so, so I'm framing our process a little bit, you know, it, our process is deep with the intention that we're going to discard 9 out of 10 things that we look at, nine, you know, 19 out of 20 things we look at. So, um, so that, that flows into stage two of our process, which is kind of our, our data download. This is, this is what we're trying to figure out is like what kind of business is this? Um, and this is what we call the verify uh, stage. And so we're trying to figure out, is this a buffet? Or is this a gram because what we're trying to do is predetermine our sell discipline if it gets a fair value and it's a gram we're going to sell it if it gets a fair value and it's a buffet we're more likely to hold it and so this is the this is where we're we have a cap iq uh populated spreadsheet that basically is just a template for a model and so you plug in the ticker and and all the historical information pops out and what that does is it allows us to try to determine what kind of business this is um and so that that takes, you know, that's re- reading K's and Q's. We spend a lot of time thinking about the proxy statement, more so than just about any other investors I ever talked to. We're always you know, just scrutinizing that document to figure out what incentivizes people, because the truth of the matter is, you know, tell me how you're compensated and I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i tell you how you're gonna act. Because that's, you know, and, and, the proxy, and the proxy statement is a gold mine to tell you how people are compensated and how they're gonna act. And so we spend a lot of time validating that stuff. And so let's say that, you know, after the first view, I've, I've determined, or one of my colleagues has determined that this looks, this looks like a pretty good business, um, the people seem good to okay, um, and uh, it looks reasonably valued, right? And then we move into stage three, which is our team tackle. And so this is something that's a little unique about Code Street, and, and, and it's an outcropping of the fact that we, uh, you know, we're gonna limit our asset size because we're, you know, we, we're, we're, we're a small cap focused firm, we're gonna limit the number of strategies that we have, and we have a limited number of securities because we run concentrated portfolios. So what that means is that we can do we can we can team tackle ideas. And so what a team tackle is, is that every idea has two longs on it and one short. Um, and the two longs are kind of focused on creating the the, the bold case right They're But we're, and we're all and, and when we move to stage three, we kind of move, we, we put this into our workflow. So it's not like we drop everything, but we, but I'll, I'll have to recruit. So if I have like have an idea, I like I'll recruit one of my colleagues and he'll be my co-long. And we'll say, who wants to be the short? And so what's the point of the short? The short is the devil's advocate. The short is the person who is coming up with reasons why we shouldn't own it. The idea that like, how do you kill the idea, right? And so what that does is it creates this back and forth dialogue about the risks and, 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 and the benefits of, of, of this company. And so, you have, it, so basically you have the whole team working on it. Um, and what that does is we benefit from the fact that we have different backgrounds. And different thought processes, and so you know, I think Jeff created Cove Street, and, and in a way that he didn't want all of us to be. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with being this, but, the, but he didn't want us all to be like ex-investment bankers who, you know, spent you know three years in banking, worked one year in private equity, and now you know working in, on the buy side in, in, in equity research, right? Like you know, uh, Eugene Robin, my colleague, worked at ViaSat, which is as a satellite programmer. I come from the real estate industry. Uh, Dean worked, you know, my, my colleague Dean basically worked for a government agency, like was like a was in like an outsourced CIA kind of investigation. So, really, what it is 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 taking all these people's backgrounds and all these different perspectives, both on value and in both on value investing, and meshing them together and coming up with a really, I think, good back and forth about this company. Um, and so that's stage three. And so if. It, it, just just it, before it, you go
0: into stage four, how, sure. how, how often does a short prevail over the two longs? And what are the sort of reasons why a short might yeah. prevail?
1: That's a great question. Um, and so, I, I mean, by definition, the short prevails far more often than the opposite because we pass on so many things. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the short had some kind of like a silver bullet moment where th- th- this we can't own this because of this like you found like a fraudulent thing. It's not that. It's more like you convince your colleagues who are excited about it that there are more risks um, than rewards, and that they the, the symmetry isn't there, maybe the value isn't there, or that and and this is something that I focus a lot on, or that the people are not people that you can trust. Um, and so I, I think what it, what this does more than anything else is creates a culture where we're both, we're willing and able to accept criticism, um, where we're willing and able to accept other people's ideas. Um, and, um, we listen to each other. Right. And I think that's really hard to build. And I give, I give Jeff a lot of credit for being able to, you know, ink and kind of inoculate that culture. Um, but I would say since we pass on nine out of 10 things, 19, 20 <laughs> things we look at, the shorts are often, you know, e- either very persuasive or I think the most often is the case is that we all get into the room and we in our our, our our analyst room and we kind of banter back and forth the the lead analyst realizes that this is for whatever reason whether it's the value whether it's the business whether it's the people um it's just not it's just not the right kind of investment for us and so but the the good thing that we do is that we make sure that we and this goes into our stage four we capture that decision and we make sure that if, if it's just about price, right? If, if we're not willing to pay what the current price is, what price would we buy it at? So that all that work that we've done isn't lost and it's recorded and it's on a, and, and we put it on a watch list and, and, and with a price target. And if it hits that price target, then all of a sudden then we can reengage. And so all that information, all that back and forth, is captured and not lost. Um, and so that's kind of so I'll move into our stage four, which is our decision process uh, spreadsheet. So. Uh, we don't write, you know, 20 or 30 page memos, um, you know, investment memos. Like, I, I know some firms do that. Um, we have a much, we have a very flat organization. We all sit out together. We don't have, you know, we're not locked in offices. Um, if I want to talk to Jeff or I want to talk to Eugene or I want to talk to Dean, I can just stand up and talk to them. It's a, it's a we have a, the information flow isn't, isn't kind of gated by either having offices or having to speak on emails or being in different cities. You know, we're, we can, we can iterate um, and 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 do more work and come back to each other very quickly. Um, and so um, this is our final process. So let's say I'm the lead analyst on an idea. I like the idea. I'm gonna, you know, I'm 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 gonna I'm I'm I want to bring it to a decision. So we all get into the room and we record our decision. So we fill out our decision process spreadsheet, which is really just a checklist of many of the mistakes that Jeff made over his career encapsulated in a spreadsheet. And so uh, we have a tab on the four key variables. So why, why four? There's nothing magic about the number four. It's just that Jeff Jeff and, and, and the way he created his firm, and I think it makes a lot of sense, is that he recognized that there are a million different variables that you can that you could consider for, for a company. But really, it's going to come down to three to five really, really important things that are going to determine whether you make money. Um, we also have the short points. So the short writes down his his kind of reputation of the, the long uh, premise. Um, we have soft thoughts. Like so, that asks like, what are we thinking that the market's not thinking? Because if, if all we can do is regurgitate what the market's thinking, probably don't have a differentiated perspective. What's our downside if we're wrong, right? So kind of trying to capture if we're wrong, how bad could it possibly be? Um, and you know, where is this company in seven years is another question we ask, not, not, not a quarter out not three months out, not three years, about seven years, trying to take yourself out of all of the noise that, that, that surrounds companies in the short run, mainly because of the, you know, the quarterly earnings cycle. And then we have, a, we have a question like, would you rather own Tootsie Roll? And, and, and I don't know if you know anything about Tootsie Roll. Of course. Like a, like, but it, the cool, the interesting thing about Tootsie Roll is like it's the easiest company in the world to understand. They sell candy. Right. And they sold candy for a really long time and a stock trades at an unbelievable multiple. And it's like, I don't know if that I, it was a husband and wife team I mean, just an incredible little business. But the question, but it's really a question about simplicity. Is this business really difficult to understand? Are there a million moving parts, 20 different things that have to go right for you to make money? Like, wouldn't you rather just own Tootsie Roll because you know what it is. Right. And so th- this is th- these are the things that we that we put on our spreadsheet. Um, and the lead analyst fills it out, and then we all get into the room and we discuss it. Um, and so Jeff, in his infinite wisdom, wanted to make sure that the process that he didn't bias the, bias the process, and that we could create a process that mitigates the behavioral biases. So this is what you learn from you know being in the industry as long as I have, and you know managing people other people's money, is that you're constantly bombarded with behavioral biases that creep in i know for a fact that anchoring which is the is is kind of that you 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 become anchored into a number right like so if i thought we should be buying the stock at 30 and we didn't and the stock's 35 i'm going to anchor to that that the 30 number and it's going to be very hard for me to move off of that and so i i recognize some of my biases and all of us have different biases but our our process is designed to try to try to mitigate some of that and so that that flows into our final decision process so everybody who worked on the idea weighs in and records their preference so um, why do we do that one because we don't want the kind of he said she said two years later i should you i said we should have bought that stock no you didn't, you didn't want to buy it right right we we write it down we record it um and the other thing is in, in terms of compensation. It, Jeff can figure out, and, and as you as think about compensating us, like who's, who's doing well, who's, who's, who's giving good ideas. And then if he's not accepting our good ideas, then maybe he needs to think, rethink about his process. And so uh, Jeff, as the, as the portfolio manager on our small cap strategy, always goes last because he doesn't want to bias us. Because if your boss says, hey, we should buy this, well, then maybe you change your opinion. He wants to hear our, our unbiased opinions. And, and we go around the room, You know, Ben, what do you, what do you think it's worth? What do you think we should do and in what position size and if we aren't going to do something now is there a price that you'd buy it at and then we all go and then jeff weighs in on the final decision uh the only difference between the front, a small cap and the strategy that jeff and i run is that jeff and i are the final decision makers in in, in, in our smith strategy um but you know this is i've given you the 30000 foot overview of our process um i think it's it's, it's very comprehensive um, it's designed to um, unearth uh, interesting information about companies. Um, and it's also designed to make sure that we are not you know, falling subject to any number of behavioral biases.
0: It sounds like a great process. And it sounds like you guys have created a great culture there. And I, I noticed when I was going through your slide deck that one of the things you look at in the firms that you're examining, in the stocks that you're examining, you spend a lot of time on the culture. And I thought that was a unusual slide and particularly detailed can you just expand a little bit more on what you're looking for in terms of culture in the firms that you're in the stocks that you're looking at
1: yeah so i i don't want to get on a soapbox but i'm going to spend a second on it i mean to some extent the idea of shareholder value shareholders being more valuable than all the other stakeholders has captured corporate america right um and i think that that, that, that leaves a lot to be desired in the sense that, you know, there are plenty of other stakeholders in a business, whether it's your employees or your suppliers, you know, the environment, uh, you know, the board of directors. I mean, there are plenty of other stakeholders involved here. And, and if you're only focusing on shareholder value, right, I think you can you, you miss out and, and you potentially you know cut off your own you know your own legs in terms of the ability to outperform per, uh, over the long run. So we're really focused on finding people who are thinking long term, who are acting long term, who are, um, you know, it's not like they're they're just they're red flags that come up that we you know, that we try to stay away from. So someone who's constantly restructuring, which means that you're always firing people, you know, you're all you're probably impacting the culture negatively, right? If If people don't know whether they have a job anymore, like, and they're always worried about being fired, right? These are things that are problematic. Um, And so we have a we have a list of both you know, kind of like a list that we go through when we're assessing management. So when I think of culture, I mean, our whole assessment of management basically embodies, you know, is embodied in that and then that idea of culture. Um, And so what so maybe maybe to give you a look, make it more concrete, I'll give you some things that we are looking for and things that we are not looking for. Um, And so let's let's start with what we are not looking for. Um, So we are not looking for um companies that you know when you go through their financial statements they have a laundry list of environmental liabilities or lo- legal liabilities or you know anything these are things that might be indicative of a culture that might be a little bit too you know too aggressive in certain ways we're, we're not we're we're certainly not looking for people who are focused on the short run in any way shape or form so whether that's you know focused on making quarterly numbers, whether that's going to the proxy statement and see that they're focused solely on kind of short-term results or primarily on short-term results. Uh, We also want people who are focused on things that we care about, which is free cash flows and returns on invested capitals and not quarterly earnings per share. Um, Because again, incentives are are huge determinants in terms of of how people act. Um, And so if I had to encapsulate it, long-term focused people who are um creating cultures that are can last um and a lot of that can be reflected because, and and something else we do we look at glassdoor and indeed.com to see how, how people are rated right and we and we track that over time just to make sure that or, or i mean if it's improving that's good but just to make sure in the companies we own that it's not getting worse so we're always it, this is you know i actually did a presentation at, at ucla um on, on uh, assessing management in the proxy statement um and the, one of my messages to the students to the undergrads was that this is really hard it's not quantitative i mean there are quantitative metrics but it's really qualitative it's a little bit squishy but it doesn't mean you can ignore it right just because it's hard to quantify doesn't mean you can ignore it and so what we try to do is we cr- try to create a list of things we're not looking for try to think and try to try to make the create things we Create a list of things we are looking for and have a checklist of those things. Um, so um, people who uh, are focused on long-term are, are willing to sacrifice short-term results for long-term gains. Uh, people who um, have a culture where they don't, when someone fails, it's, they don't get fired. It's a learning moment, right? An organization that supports its, its employees is willing to pay a living wage, right? These are, you know, I, I just think there's a balance between profitability and And kind of longevity short term profitability and longevity that's in a lot of cases skewed way toward too much towards short- term profitability and we're looking for businesses who are thinking the long term how do we make this business sustainable how do we make sure that we're still around in 20 years um, and I just think businesses like that will be able to adapt much faster than someone who's who's focused on, on what they're going to earn next quarter uh that's
0: that that's fascinating the- one of the things I noticed as I was going through your deck was this uh, a PEST analysis, a PEST yeah. analysis. I've never encountered that before. I'm embarrassed to say, but I did look it up before we before we talk. So can you tell what, what is a PEST analysis and how do you apply it?
1: Yeah, so we're not macro investors. We don't pretend to be macro investors, but we recognize that if you completely ignore the macro, you have a risk of being just totally kind of blindsided by um, some events that, that you weren't considering. So PEST is something that we fill out on our decision process spreadsheet. Um, There's a tab called PEST, and it stands for political, economic, technological, and social. And so what what are those? Those are political, economic, uh, technological, and social trends that can either benefit or hurt the company. So I'll just give you some examples. So we are looking at an animal health company recently, and on the political side, there's been a fair amount of regulatory things going on with um, feeding uh, um, antibiotics to animals. So, making sure that you are that you are identifying that there's a risk of further regulatory reform, uh, more regulatory scrutiny that would fall into political, right? Economic is just is 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 kind of your normal, you know, how economically sensitive is this business? You know, does it follow the business cycle? Does it have some kind of anti-fragile elements to it? Does it have some counter-cyclicality to it? Right, that's the economic side. Um, Social is, um, I mean, continuing the animal health idea is like, okay, so if people are eating less meat because they're eating Impossible Burgers, well, that's a social trend that you know maybe could impact this company. Or uh, people have moved away from, uh, specifically in poultry, uh, moved away from. from having antibiotics in, in, in poultry. And that's been a social thing. It's been less government mandate, it's been more of a social thing. So that has been an interesting dynamic for certain companies. And so, you know, what can happen social, which way are the social winds blowing is something that you really, I think you can't ignore, um, especially if, if it's a consumer product of some kind. And then technological is like, what is the opportunity for technological disruption, right? If you are, you know, if you are selling furniture online, yeah, I mean, I think there's a fair amount of risk of technological disruption and, um, and 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 new entrants. But if you're selling aggregates, right? For example, like, and you have a, a quarry, uh, uh, very hard to disintermediate that by. There's no app that can get that can help you build a quarry, you know, build build a road, right? You need you need the aggregates. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to determine at what ri- how much risk is this company to to technological change. And so that's our the PEST analysis is is just another risk assessment measure, right? And so we're trying to figure out, in, in, in everything we do, we're really trying to figure out why not to own this company. And I know that might sound a little strange, but we're looking for reasons not to own it. And if the overwhelming evidence is that the pest analysis is a big threat, there's two there's two ways to look at it. One, you just shouldn't own it, or one, you should require an enormous margin of safety in order to feel comfortable with all of these risks. Um, and so um, I mean, this is, we know that we're not going to predict the, 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 the direction of interest rates or oil prices, but at least we can acknowledge the risks associated with the companies that we that we invest in.
0: How do you think about sizing positions? So you're, you're, you, you describe yourselves as concentrated. You said you're running between 20 and 29 positions. How do you think about sizing that, that, sizing yep. them at inception? Do you trim as they go up? Do you add as they go down? How do you handle that process? Yeah. I mean, the,
1: the the ultimate question. And so uh, it's very difficult. You know, these, these are things that as, as you run money, you, re- you realize how difficult these things are in practice versus watching other people do them. Um, but in, in small cap plus, we have three position sizes, uh, two and a half, five and seven and a half. And in small cap, we have two and a half and five. And those are those are, at, you know, at entry, right? We don't I, I think you want to have discretion of as an investor. But you also want to pin yourself in at some times so that you don't have just you know what 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 a consultant would call the dispersion right where you don't have like one percent positions here and two and a half here like we try to keep it tight um, in order to you know and and it helps it helps frame the investment as well it's not just a it's not just a a a way to make sure that we don't have accounts that are all over the place it's it's more about like is this a best idea, or is this a half position, which may would would be not be a bad, it would be a good idea, but maybe not our best ideas. Um, and so uh, those are those are our ideas. Uh, those are our position sizes to start. Um, and and as you can recognize, I mean, you, those are those are pretty concentrated position uh, sizes. And I think the trimming and adding thing. There's no universal answer to that. It's Tell me about the security, what kind of business is it? So we want to buy businesses that we're excited when they go down because we can buy more. Right. And so in a gram, if a stock goes down 20%, I think you're less likely to, to, to add to it. If it's a buffet, um, I think you're more likely to add to it. So I think we are, you know, opportunistic in terms of adding and trimming. Um it, and, and it goes the other way. Like if a gram starts appreciating towards Uh, fair value, we may sell it all or sell a piece of it or sell it back down to a two and a half percent position. But if it's a Buffett, you know, you may be less inclined to sell it. So again, it gets back to everything we do, um, you know, kind of stems from this identification of what this business is, what this security is, is it a Buffett or is it a Graham? And that will kind of tell us uh, what to do when it's up, what to do when it's down, what to do when it gets to fair
0: value. Do you have a limit at the to the number? Of, so say so you size something to seven and a half percent, so that's very high conviction, and then it goes against you materially. Would you then, and, and if you still like the position, you like it more now because it's cheaper, it's at a bigger discount. Would you be prepared to buy more in that instance?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you have to, um, and I think, and we've actually, I've I've talked to a lot of uh, my friends who run portfolios about this, and some people have, you know, rules about I'm only going to average down once or twice, or. You know, I, I don't average down, and we just, you know, we just, we just let it ride. Like I think everyone has different philosophies. I don't think there's any one right philosophy. It's, as, it's just about, it's just about being right, right? It's just about picking the right securities and, and not buying the one that goes down more and, and buying the one that, that turns around. But um, I think we're always re-underwriting our ideas. And so if nothing has changed except for the fact that the market has determined that it's worth 20% less than it was three weeks ago. I think we're inclined to add to it. Um, And then in certain times, you know, when when circumstances change, right, businesses change much more slowly than do stock prices. But it is true that businesses change over time. And so things that we had a fair amount of conviction in the past, we may not have as much conviction in the future. So it's, you know, those you'd be less likely to average down in. Um, And, you know, and the truth of the matter is, if I was being intellectually honest, if, if, if I'm not willing to buy it here, I probably, you know, maybe we shouldn't own it at all. Right. And, and so that's maybe it triggers a reassessment or re underwriting or a decision process node where we all weigh in on whether we should own this thing at all. Right. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, everything is about, you know, the the buff, the buffer rules. Right. First rules, don't lose money. Second rules, don't forget the first. Right. And so if you're if it, once something becomes uh, a, a security in which we see a risk of permanent ca- capital impairment, you know, that can trigger. You know, that, that, I guess that's kind of gets the answer to the question: Is the is, is is the security being down evidence of of a risk of cap of a permanent capital impairment, or just the 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 volatility in the market? Um, it's the latter that we want to take advantage of.
0: Uh, you and I were at a conference recently, and we were chatting about uh, small and mid cap. And out of that, you sent me a, a paper by Jeffries talking about the opportunities in mid cap. There are a couple of interesting facts in that that I uh, that really stuck in my mind. One is that of the Russell indices since 1979, that SMIDCAP index is the best performed over that entire period. And one of the arguments that they make is that mid-cap gives you the returns of small with about 15% less, less risk. What? Presumably, they're defining that as volatility in that instance. But uh, what, what's, the, what's the attraction for you in particular of uh, that small to mid-cap range?
1: So uh, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, I sent you that because I, I thought it validated uh, our our strategy. But I mean, the, the data is interesting. And so, um, let me give you the philosophy, and then I can give you some anecdotes that I think will will um, you know will kind of uh, crystallize why we think the Smith strategy just in, why, why why not necessarily our Smith strategy, but any Smith strategy can be interesting. So. Um, so, so here's, here's, well, maybe, maybe I'll start with some anecdotes about Cove Street and, and that'll, 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 that'll kind of guide us to why, to why we even started the strategies. One, um, so small cap, the problem, I love small cap and it's evergreen because there are just so many companies out there and there's always a great opportunity in, in a few names, right? But the issue with small cap is that your Buffets eventually leave small cap. Right. And so we found ourselves at Cove Street having to sell our Buffett stocks out of small cap, because at a certain point, if your entry point is three billion and under and it's an eight billion dollar company, right, think like it just doesn't make it doesn't make any sense to be in small cap anymore. Right. And so that was one thing that that we saw. Um, and the other thing that I saw is that and and this is, you know, I'm not trying to disparage anybody. This is just an this is just a personal. Anecdote is that they're just the the quality of. Everything surrounding the company, the management, the uh, business, the end markets. You just find much better, more robust businesses in, in, in kind of in the four billion plus range. Um, and so it kind of gets to the idea of uh, that you that the Jeffrey's piece discussed, which is you get a similar return, maybe a little bit less. But in this case, Smith's done better, but you maybe a little bit less return, but there's just less risk because you have large total addressable markets, you don't have as much customer concentration, you don't have as much end market risk because you have diversification, and then maybe you have an international operation. So I I just, you know, having spent time in the sub 500 million market cap range, what you find is that these are just the, you know, I joke and I don't actually mean this, but sometimes small cap is like adverse selection. Like if, if, there, if, if it's a small cap, there's a reason it's a small cap. Maybe that's because the total addressable market's not that big or management's never had the bandwidth to go international or, you know, just the return structures, you know, not, you know, it's just not, it can't compound at a fast rate to be able to kind of get escape velocity and get, you know, kind of create a business that's, that, that, that can kind of get into this mid, mid uh, market cap range. And so this is the way I put it to people is that, so if, if on one hand, on one end of the spectrum, you have kind of a, 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 a manager who runs Sub-Saharan private equity, um, Sub-Saharan African private equity, and the other hand, you have large cap US value, right? Like, I think that basically captures like total inefficiency on one hand to, you know, like relative inefficiency on the other, sorry, relative efficiency on the other hand. I think, I personally think that SMID, even, even as you get above, you know, four or five billion in market cap, um, I, I think you're much closer to the inefficient side. And so while you give up a little bit of that in, inefficiency that's available in small cap, um, I think you get it back in spades with quality of business, quality of processes, quality of management. Um, and it's it's just, you know, these are just more robust businesses. And, and and then I'll just give one more point here is that what we've seen in, 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 in areas where I said I said we've made mistakes in businesses that just were kind of, smaller um and you know had, had had maybe more uh impactful variables that could get that could, could could be you know materially negative is that smaller businesses just cannot take a punch right if they're punched right it, it can create a spiral that and you know whatever it is they become levered and then they have to you know they have to borrow from aggressive lenders and then you know they don't generate any cash anymore because interest rate it, it just the spiral can can really really occur. On the flip side, if a four or five billion dollar business has one end market or one segment that's underperforming, there's a ballast. There's a you know there's a robustness that allows it to survive. And so I think you know I, I think it, the data suggests um, what we saw anecdotally. Um, and as as I've spent more and more time in this space, I've felt the same thing. I, I feel like we don't like there are there are businesses that we can invest in. That have all of the attributes that we like of a Buffett stock that aren't household names, that aren't covered by 80 analysts, um, you know, that 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 have the ability to compound, but they're somewhat um And so we're always looking for stocks that are underloved, underappreciated, and underfollowed. Um, and I, it's been surprising to me the number of those you can find in this mid-cap range.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's it, it's my favorite universe. or well, it's my it's the universe that I use on the low side. I think I look at about as low as i think the smallest is is two and a half billion but the average is around four or five i don't have a i don't have a, a, a an upper limit but just by virtue of the fact that i'm looking for cheap very cheap companies they tend to be down at that end closer to the low end of the of the range and i also it, it this sounds slightly contradictory because i do agree with you that they tend to be under because all of the the analysts in the bigger firms want big liquid companies. So that pushes them into the large cap stocks. But I I think it's where you find the private equity and the activists who are uh, professional private equity and professional activists. uh, They sort of hunt in that, in that five to 10 to $15 billion range, which is great if you, if you're buying a little bit cheaper than that, hopefully they're, they're paying the takeover premium to take you out or they're creating the, the activist campaign to sort of, generate some returns for you. Do, you. do you see that in your stocks? Do you find any uh, activists or private equity targeting them after you've bought them?
1: I think the simple answer is um, there are a lot of micro-cap and small-cap activists who who unfortunately have like one measure, no, one remedy, buy back stock, right? Or, or sell yourself, right? Like there's just two things, right? I think you're right that as you get bigger, you you get into much more uh, sophisticated governance and shareholder-friendly uh, advice from people. But I think even more interesting is about this space, and we haven't actually seen this as much as I would have thought in, in our SMIDCAP strategy, but these are digestible deals, right? So it's it's not that, you know, like no, no one's going to buy Cisco, right? Like it's not possible, right? But a 4 or $5 billion company is a digestible deal for either private equity, as you said, or, as a, or from a strategic perspective. So it's like you're, they're not so small that they're under the radar for, for the, the big PE guys and, and the big strategics, um, but they're also not so large that they can't be, be bought. So I, I look at Smith a little bit like a Goldilocks space. And when you have good businesses within that that are getting more valuable every day, um, I, I think it always makes sense for either a financial buyer or a strategic buyer to be looking at these businesses um, and, you know, I think I just want to be clear about our process. We certainly do not start an investment with the idea that this is going to be bought. What we're starting our investment is this is a, this is a good business that's getting more valuable every day. Uh, it's run by people who understand capital allocation. It's trading at a reasonable discount to our assessment, our conservative assessment of intrinsic value. And someone else may recognize that and accelerate our return. Um, and in some, some cases, you're sad about that because you, they take a compounder from you. Right. And so, you know, as, as, as a firm that's built for the long run and focused on the long run, sometimes, you know, immediate gratification is not what you're looking for. But our sense is if you if you combine the, the business value and people characteristics that I'm talking about, other individuals will recognize it as well. Um, and, 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 and hopefully, you know, at least push you towards success.
0: Uh, when you step back a little bit and think about value uh, as uh, it's not an asset class, but value as a strategy, it's been a difficult time for value. I'm not. I'm not necessarily talking about your returns. I don't. I don't know what they are. But it's been a difficult. It's been a difficult run for value, starting s- starting a year or so after the recovery in 2009 to date. Are you? Do you feel positive about the the future for value? Are you, are you, do you think that we've got some time to go until we sort of uh, shake everybody out?
1: So, I mean, this is the impossible question to answer is, you know, value had been identified as, uh, you know, an anomaly in in academic research forever, right? And it had worked for a really long time. um, And the last 10 years have been miserable for value investors, um, you know, especially on a relative basis. Um, And so I think we fundamentally still believe in mean reversion nothing has changed about that right nothing grows to the sky and nothing you know continues to fall to the center of the earth right and so in some ways we will eventually see some mean reversion um but if you just think about what people are excited about um in the world today it is not you know the business most of the for the most part it's not the businesses we own um and you know i mean i think I, I wasn't investing in the 2000 and 2000 kind of a 2002 period but um, I actually looked at the the numbers recently um, and I thought this was interesting is that I think it was whether it was in 2000 2001 the, the market overall was down the growth was down but value was up right and so it was like there was this weird bifurcation in the market where it was really the the, the high flyers that you know the, all those businesses that we joke about now that are not around anymore um, you know those were the ones driving the 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 growth side and and people, and eventually when that turned around, it, it, it turned around very quickly in, in, in terms of those stocks. But the, but the value stocks um, outperformed, and they outperformed by a large, a large margin. And, and, you know, there were plenty of whatever those articles about profit being dead and value being dead and all those things. So I don't, you know, I, we can't spend that much time worrying about that. I mean, I will say from a firm perspective, yeah, it's been really difficult to convince a bunch of other, you know, a, a bunch of institutional investors that value is a place to be. Right. Because no matter it, the truth of the matter is, even if they are long term looking, if values out for un, underperformed for 10 years. Like very few people have that long a time horizon. So, um, you know, we we can't focus that much on it. We, what I love about our strategies is that um, it, it almost doesn't matter. I, I, want, I don't want to be flippant about this, but it doesn't matter to a huge degree whether the market is expensive or not, you know, because I, I think overall we, we feel like the markets, you know, relatively expensive it's hard to find really interesting values but when you run concentrated portfolios you only need a couple of new ideas um, and there's just and market inefficiency is is as such that you're going to find opportunities over time if you do the work and you are you know be, be pre-prepared for ideas to fall into your lap and so that's what we do um, and you know it would be very nice if at some point uh the you know there's some mean reversion in terms of the value versus growth paradigm but you know, we're not counting on it. We don't bank on it. We spend every day looking at securities from a bottom-up portfolio. Sorry, from a bottom-up perspective. Um, and that's all you can do. I mean, aside from lament with people like you about the the the, the, uh, the lack of opportunities or the, um, the the poor relative performance of value. Um, you know, it's kind of like you take it with you take it for what it's worth, and you try to find interesting ideas irrespective.
0: It's a, it's a funny, I, I couldn't agree with you more, but it, it's also, it's a funny point in the market where we both know that we can look at the historical returns to well-known value investors. You can look at the historical returns to the value anomaly and it has typically outperformed. But over the last 30 years, it's really only had a brief period of outperformance yeah. in the mid 2000s and late 1990s was very, very tough. That was, has Buffett lost at magazine cover territory. And then the uh, early two thousands to about two thousand and seven really did massively outperform, and that's that idiosyncratic return path of value, where the market was getting crushed, but just being a long only value investor generated returns. And then we've gone into a new regime again over the last ten years, where value really just can't get out of its own way, and the the, the flows and the performance seems to have gone into those uh, the the growth stocks. But we're we're at this funny point now still where the value stocks, the value decile, that that value anomaly—they're still not that cheap. They're sort of um, they're at a slight premium to their long-run average. But the growth stocks are in nosebleed territory, which yeah. is like a, a late 1990s, early 2000s type phenomenon. So I have no idea what happens, but I do think that that gap has to close at some stage, and I think that that's beneficial for value. But I, I don't know, and I, I'm sort of more hoping than than uh, believing.
1: Yeah, you have to. Uh... You have to be able to keep your clients long enough to uh, realize whenever that mean reversion comes, right? Um, that, that's, what else can you do? I mean, these are, these are things that, again, we focus on process and not outcome. And if you have a good process, and if you're identifying good securities, we, we believe that the market will eventually recognize you know, what we see in these businesses, and, and, and that's the only way we can, we can really uh, outperform over time.
0: It's been wonderful chatting to you, Ben. Uh, if somebody wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way to go about doing that?
1: Yeah, so uh, CoveStreetCapital.com. Uh, you can you can see our profiles and um, and I think uh, I think my email address is on there. But uh, B Claremont at CoveStreetCapital.com. Uh, happy to chat more about Cove Street. Um, you know our process or philosophy. Um, you know talk about our culture because I mean we didn't talk that much about culture in terms of like how, the, what we created here. But you know we're we, we're a quirky group. Um, I think it, it's a good you know I think it, in a good way. Um, so I, am happy to chat about that as well. And, um, you know, happy to follow up on any of the things we talked about.
0: Very much appreciate you sharing the process and the philosophy that you guys use. Ben Claman. thank you very much. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it.